It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The EU is working on emergency interventions to try to contain soaring gas and electricity prices for hard-pressed consumers and businesses by reforming energy markets. We, the Commission, are now working on an emergency intervention and a structural reform of the electricity market. Energy costs and the rest of the cost of living burden looms large as public sector pay talks resume, with unions making their position pretty clear. Since we were here ten and a half weeks ago, is that inflation, the cost of living has increased by a further additional one and a half percent. And I'm here at Ireland's largest university where tens of thousands of students are preparing to start a new school term. But the panicked search for student accommodation continues. Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Some relief may be on the way for hard-pressed consumers and their soaring gas and electricity bills. The European Commission is looking at emergency interventions aimed at containing record-breaking jumps in energy costs. Well, the news comes as wholesale energy prices in Ireland reached new highs, 14 times higher than the same time two years ago. Member states will discuss the plans next week and could introduce a price cap on energy for the entire continent or break the link between gas and electricity prices. Well, Ursula von der Leyen says the current spikes mean that the energy market simply isn't fit for purpose. It was developed for completely different, under completely different circumstances and completely different purposes. It is no more fit for purpose. And that's why we, the Commission, are now working on an emergency intervention and a structural reform of the electricity market. Well, a short time ago, I spoke to Politico Europe Chief Brussels Correspondent Suzanne Lynch about the proposed emergency intervention in energy markets amid soaring prices right across the European Union. Yes, the pressure has been building in practically every country in Europe over the summer. We're now um, facing into the winter and there is now real concern about energy supply, but in the media term, energy cost. So we're seeing record prices of wholesale uh, energy costs. And uh, this has now moved the European Commission uh, to, to intervene in some way. Um, it's interesting that, you know, last autumn you had some countries act calling for action. So countries like Spain and France 
And their argument is that the way the EU electricity market uh, works is that electricity is priced off gas. And they say that's unfair, particularly countries that are not that dependent on gas. Uh, the price they're paying for electricity still depends on gas. So countries like France, for example, that are very dependent on nuclear. But until this point, the European Com Commission has been uh, reluctant to get involved. It said, no, these uh, price rises might be temporary. But now here we are more than six months into the war in Ukraine, and there is no sign of these rising prices falling anytime soon. So that's why I think we're seeing that statement by Ursula von der Leyen today that some kind of intervention is coming. So, Suzanne, what's practically being considered as a fix to the markets, as a fix to this crisis? What the Commission seemed to be looking at is some way of decoupling the price of electricity from the price of gas. It's highly technical, but that's really what's at the core of it. Um, now, significantly, the Czech Republic, which, which are holding the presidency of the EU at the moment, they have also announced that they're going to be holding an emergency meeting of energy ministers on September the 9th, the end of next week. So what we are expecting is that the Commission over the next few days, with very few details, will work on some kind of package, that that will be thrashed out here in Brussels, that we'll have um, ambassadors and diplomats from all the EU members the 27 members will uh, become involved in that discussion and that there will be some kind of package ready then next week and probably most likely energy ministers then will consider that and uh, potentially sign off on something. But there really is a sense here that something needs to be done as sooner rather than later, particularly, as I say, as we head into this beginning of the winter period. Certainly all eyes um, on the spiralling energy crisis and how everyone is simply feeling it in their pockets. Suzanne Lynch, Chief Brussels Correspondent with Politico Europe. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. Well, I'm joined on our panel tonight by Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley, consumer journalist Siobhan Maguire, Irish Daily Mail political correspondent Craig Hughes and Sinn Féin TD Rose Conway-Walsh. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Craig, I want to come to you first, if I may. We got a government press statement this evening. Now, it may have been on the back of those comments by Ursula von der Leyen about this intervention in the markets, saying that, you know, coalition members and senior officials met again this evening to discuss the energy security and supply situation, very conscious of the concern of households and businesses around energy costs. Is this all pre-budget planning? We understand that Taoiseach was at the helm of that meeting. Or do you think it's something off the back of what, what's being discussed right now at senior European level? I'd be surprised if it wasn't uh, coinciding with Ursula von der Leyen's uh, comments because uh, no one in the political media had kind of heard of this meeting in advance of this. Um, and I think sources I was speaking to tonight said it was heavily focused on price um, and what they can do for businesses and consumers. But I think the clearest indication of what might be considered in terms of emergency planning is actually coming from um, the CRU. They're there before the, the Climate Committee tomorrow. Um, I've seen the opening statement for that committee. Uh, and one of the things they'll be looking at to kind of re reduce the burden here is to leverage the, uh, the reserve capacities of our large um, energy users like data centres, so making them use their backup generators to take some pressure off the grid. That's one thing that we know tonight that has been in consideration to ease the burden. Is that on the supply uh, yeah. issue, Craig, and mm. on the affordability issue? Yeah, well, I think what we've heard before is they've been looking at different levers, perhaps like expanding or increasing um, fuel allowance and things like that. We all, the much talked about uh, blanket utility payment, of course, will be in the mix as well. And um, so there's a range, range of measures that they, they can use. However, they will be 
pressed to make them as targeted as possible. Mm. Siobhan, on this, I mean, like, clearly, not only is this not going away, but we're entering into a really, really difficult winter, aren't we? We, we heard from, and, you know, it just emerged on Friday evening about these um, electricity price rises. They're likely to be the, in the region of 35.4%, I think, for electricity and 39% hike for gas. Other energy companies are just going to follow suit, aren't they? That's right, Claire. I mean, when we see one, one company put up their prices, all the others follow. I mean, this is what happens traditionally. And we're talking today about Ursula van der Leyen, you know, talking about the, the energy uh, crisis within the block. But um, in October of last year, there were similar talks where cost of living was brought up because we were facing into a winter of discontent. And yet here we are, one year on, facing into yet even more problems, even worse problems, if you like. Um, at that time, on foot of that meeting, Claire, um, Spain, Belgium, and Greece actually capped their energy prices until spring of this year. So they put in place something that would give consumers a chance to maybe have a little bit of a breath and be able to figure out exactly when what they, they would make be spending. That, call? that was shortly after, in October of last year, when they had that meeting in the block about what they would do about energy prices. Those three countries then put the caps in place until the spring of this year. Why isn't that or why hasn't something like that been considered here, Timmy Dooley? Yeah, well, the government have, as you know, introduced a number of measures to stabilise the cost of electricity over the last uh, number of months in terms of the provision uh, of supports to people who, who most needed it. Um, there was a considerable increase um, in the fuel allowance. Uh, there was a €200 Euro rebate. There was a reduction mm. uh, in gas and, and oil with both excise uh, yeah. and VAT. Yeah, and we did. We've heard that broken so, down. So, this this 2.4 billion helpful. to address the cost of living. That was helpful living. because the was expectation helpful. was that it was a short What about this specific intervention yeah. with introduction around energy yeah, costs and capping there's prices? Been, there's been talks for some time now at European level that there needs to be a, a whole-of-Europe approach. And I think the comments from us, Ursula van der Leyen this evening points very specifically to that because there's there's a couple of issues there's as you talked about earlier there's the linkage between the cost of gas and electricity which isn't really fit for purpose anymore when you consider that uh, a country like ireland we, we produce 42 percent of our electricity from renewables last year so a lot of consumers are scratching their head wondering well well why then should it be linked to the price of gas when there's such a, a considerable amount of our electricity being generated from renewable sources of which gas isn't part of at all so i'm confident uh, that there will be um, an interim measure in the next number of weeks from the European Union that will give a European-wide approach to this. In addition to that, the budget's coming up at the end of the coming month, and there will have to be, by government, a significant intervention to make electricity affordable. Now, there is the issue in terms of security I'm just of wondering, like, when you say make electricity affordable, I mean, we've already seen this price rise 14 times. You know, I accept that. But how, do, how do you turn around and make it affordable well, well, by, with an by, announcement by, at well, the end of September? By, by, by supporting people's in terms of the payments to them uh, and in addition to that working with the European partners to try to put some price okay. cap in place that you don't see this continuing yeah. spiralling out of control. Rose, um, from, from Sinn Féin's perspective, yeah. I mean we're hearing about these high level meetings taking place today. The government's certainly aware of, of the pressure on household they say. Uh, do you think that... that I, I really the... need to set this out okay. because I say hallelujah. Because since last November, I have spoken to the Taoiseach in the Dáil, it's on public record, to the Thánaiste and to Eamon Ryan around the decoupling of gas prices. Each and every time that the Taoiseach has gone to, uh, to Europe, before the, he goes, we have statements in the Dáil and I have raised again, will you please 
ask them to look at the structure of how gas and electricity are linked because of it driving up the cost. And they looked at me blankly each and every time. Now, Ursula van der Leyen brought it up again in July of this year. We have been monitoring this since last November in how this has been done. So it's no surprise. The Irish government should have been a lot more proactive in this in going to Europe. As was said, Portugal have done it. Some of the other countries have decoupled. And now I'm glad that they had that meeting today. It's really important that they had. But it should have been done months ago. And this wait-and-see attitude, while businesses and families are really, really suffering. I spoke to businesses in Mayo during the week. One of them, their, their, gas, their, their electricity bill last year for July was 18000 this year, it's 43,000. I am really, really afraid businesses are going to go to the wall. That same company mm. employ 50 people. So the, 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 rep rep the, the absolute consequences... So you believe there wasn't any political nothing. appetite, certainly from, from government at, at European level, to try and push for... Yeah. Any, any sort of you change can, that would help yeah. people? You can look at their expressions. Okay. When I brought it up in the doll, it was like, what are you talking about? What are you, you talking know, about? I really am frustrated by this. Are we, are we scared no. to kind no, of no, no. dip our toe well, in Europe? Right there's there's, there's, there's been see. an ongoing engagement with European partners. We don't always get our own way. I mean, there's a, there's a block of countries. And Commissioner uh, Kadri Simpson, who's the Energy Commissioner, um, has regularly talked about necessary interventions to control... Uh, the cost of electricity. One of the big issues for the Commission over the past 12 months mm. was about securing supply of gas to meet the needs of, of the European bloc uh, during this winter because of the decision that was taken um, to ban imports of, of gas from Russia. Um, there was a proposal uh, which was there where countries might be expected to have to reduce the amount of gas that it consumes. So the Commission and Ireland have been working very closely on this. And it's not a surprise to me or anyone who's watching right. it uh, that it doesn't take you know, a statement with the greatest of respect to you, Rose, in many the Many statements. That, and many of many them. Statements and, and, and that you felt months. because the Taoiseach didn't look at you in a particular way that he no, wasn't listening. because he didn't do anything, the usual yeah, yeah, response. But, but, and that's but, but why the these reality businesses is, are really the reality suffering is now. Both the Taoiseach I mean, and the Minister are engaged very proactively at European right. level to find a resolution. Uh, and this won't be done in isolation okay. from an Irish perspective. Thanks. This is a European-wide issue. Yes, it's a worldwide issue. Let's, 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 let's take yes. that into account. All right. Uh, Siobhan, just on, on, on what can be done, and there was talk over the weekend around this windfall tax and actually if, if it was to come about we know that it was put out there by Eamon Ryan saying we're going to see a windfall tax pulled back then and we got a new tweet saying certainly it will be explored but it's not likely to take a huge amount off the annual bill is it for householders it, and businesses? It really isn't Claire and if I can just come back to something Timmy mentioned there in relation to the consumers scratching their heads over you know a gas being linked with electricity in terms of pricing they're not the consumers scratching their head wondering how you know suppliers of electricity and gas in this company can make profits of 40 million in six months of this year and the rest of us are being told to turn off our hair dryers. I mean, it's, you know, it just doesn't make sense. I think at this stage, there has to be some realistic look at what is happening. The consumer can't scrimp and save anymore. We're all doing that. We're doing mm. enough. I think what has to happen is genuinely take a look at, say, for example, the VAT reduction that came into effect in May. Keep that, even though it's supposed to come back up to 13.5% uh, 
uh, come the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Keep that low. The PSO levy comes into effect. It will be zero from October. But there's lots of other ways now, I think, that uh, has to focus on what the industry and the, the, you know, the top companies can do as opposed to you and I, the consumer. We also heard in reports over the weekend, Craig, that a windfall tax, that there is fear in government that that will somehow you know, drive out investment. Yeah, and there's also some concern about whether you could collect it from all the providers, um, which, which is one of the difficulties around it. But I think from the government's point of view, I think they're in a bit of, bit of, bit of bother here. Um, if you look at the comments by the teacher last Monday, who was kind of saying he was surprised and wished there was more of an early warning around this. And then we have, you know, um, the Mail on Sunday at the weekend showing that actually a committee, a sub-cabinet committee he was on, uh, was, was warned, you know, months in advance, even a year in advance when Eamon Ryan first took over. Um, so I think the government hasn't covered themselves in glory here. And I think, you know, with the doll resumes, they're going to be in for a hell of a fight from the opposition. Uh, that €200 Euro credit that was mentioned, that received an awful lot of, you know, criticism at the time, that it wasn't targeted, it wasn't aimed at people who really needed a lot of people got it when they didn't. And yet there's a lot of people really struggling and choosing right now between food and fuel. Are, is the government planning on revisiting that um, for in terms of uh, and, and returning to that and offering that again to people at the, in the budget time. Yeah, it's certainly under consideration because from the government's point of view, it's a very easy payment to administer. However, one of the big downsides, as we saw last time, is you're giving it to some, some people mm. who don't necessarily need it. The excuse that was given was that they didn't have the time to set up a proper mechanism. However, we're, we're almost a year on now from when the first payment was given. It should have been put in place in the meantime. Rose, would you say scrap that idea? No, I would say we, we obviously need a, win, win ta a, a windfall tax. That has to be done. Um, we also need to, to stop the, the disconnection so that people aren't disconnected. And we need real meaningful interventions. What we don't need and people will not tolerate is kite flying and uh, more spin. They want very concrete things to be done in order to alleviate the pressure that they are under at the moment. Because we have to remember, if somebody is paying an extra 400 euro from their household bill, that's 400 euro. They don't have to spend on food and they don't have to spend on basic items that they absolutely need. People are under really, really severe pressure. Uh, no doubt about it. Let's move on to something else that's going on in tandem with all of this, and that's the, the pay talks. Um, unions, we understand, are balloting for potential strike action. Um, certainly, Forza have agreed to do that. SIP2, I think, were intending on doing it today and now pushing it out to September. This isn't looking great for government. Um, whatever is being put on the table, they're not happy about at union level. Yeah, look, I don't want to speak for union or government in this regard, but, you know, be, being, being an observer for, through different pay deals over quite a number of years, it's clear that you're now at the crux um, of, a, of, of a negotiation and no side is ever going to admit that they're happy with the situation. Um, reality is that, you know, they're back around... But they've said the, clearly, we heard from the unions at the top of the programme, they're not happy the, with the, the situation. The, 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 they're, they're not happy with the initial 5% pay yeah. increase that was going to be spread over two years when you're looking at kind of cost of living increases exceeding 10% at the moment. Yeah, and, and the last news report that I had seen before coming here was Kevin Callanan from, from, from the Congress of Trade Unions making it very clear that they were at the talks to do business. Um, they, those talks, to the best of my knowledge, haven't concluded uh, for tonight yet. And I would be hopeful that both sides uh, would try to resolve the situation as quickly as possible, because I, I just don't think we need a protracted discussion here. There's a clear recognition across government, across the political divide, uh, that the cost of living has gone up um, and that public sector uh, pay needs to, to, to you know, recognise that 
uh, and it needs to co co correspond with that demand. But okay. there's also an incumbent so on government, and this is the important thing, Claire. Government doesn't have, notwithstanding the kite flying that, uh, that Rose might engage in, government doesn't have an endless supply of money. At the end of the rainbow, there is no crock of gold. Yeah. So I think we have, there has to be say, meaningful you know, when discussion. When we were here. in the middle of a pandemic, though, there was, there was money to give out to protect businesses. There was money there in order to save businesses going to the wall, in order to help people during a very difficult yeah, time. Um, Siobhan, ju just on that, I suppose if you're talking about potential you know, balloting for strike action, uh, uh, with all of this uncertainty going into the winter, it's, it's the last thing really that, that we want to see happen if a deal can't be reached around pay talks. Absolutely. And, and you're so right. I mean, it's all focused on kind of cost of living. And, and we did have our cost of living budget last year. Um, and, and if we look to the, what is happening now with, with uh, ICTU and what they're saying to government, we can look across the water to the escalation in terms of strikes and protests in the UK. And that is having a knock-on effect on so many different sectors because, um, you know, trade unionists are, are standing up and saying, well, look, we're representing people who simply have have, have a, like a choice to heat the house or eat, and that is it, and that, that's all it comes down to. Uh, would Sinn Féin sort of cede to union demands and say, look, we're nearing 10%, that's sort of the kind of ballpark figure we should be looking at in terms of public sector pay rises? Well, people's incomes need to be protected, and I think they absolutely do need to hammer out a deal. And I think the talks obviously need to continue. We need to alleviate strikes because that's the last thing people need. So we, so we need to just take the pressure out of the situation. But we also need to realise that people's incomes have been really eroded. And there, many of them are the same families who are really struggling to, to eat and heat. Uh, Timmy Dooley, uh, last week we had the resignation of Junior Minister Robert Troy, who was at the centre of a storm of controversy over his ownership and registration of properties and what he failed to disclose as an elected representative. Uh, you were on radio that morning before he did the News at One interview with Brian Dobson and you intervened when you said of your Fianna Fáil colleague, he still has questions to answer. Are you happy now that Robert Troy has resigned? I think, if I remember correctly, I was asked, did I think he had questions to answer? And I said, I felt he knew that he had himself and that he would find an appropriate opportunity to answer those questions, which he did go on the, with Brian Dobson that day. The questions so, didn't yeah. stop after that. No, they didn't. And he has subsequently said, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, that he was prepared to go uh, before the doll, um, when the doll returned, mm. and answer any further questions that anyone might have from a political did, or from... Did he purpose. make the right decision in resigning? Well, I, I don't... That was a decision that he took, and he well, obviously was it, felt... Was it the right decision? Well, who, who will never know whether it was the right or the wrong decision? From his perspective, he decided that well, it's he a was fairly simple question. Do you think? I mean, we heard from the Greens that it was a distraction, that all of this yeah. was not good for the work it, of government. It, it, it did he a, make the right decision? He, he made the decision that he felt was right for him. It's was not it for right, me to was count. It right? Do you think it was well, right? I, I think if, if he had reached a conclusion that he didn't want to progress with the situation, answering questions, then it was the obvious outcome for him to resign. Because he's unrepentant about, you know, um, um, his, his property and his, you know, activities, investments in the property market and all of that. Those are questions for, for Robert. You're asking me to comment on somebody else's business, okay. and I'm not prepared well, to do that. It was only because there was the, the obviously the intervention by yourself prior prior to that interview. That's why we're asking that here. Um, in terms of how the Taoiseach and the Thornish have handled this controversy, though, Craig, um, has it been very damaging for them? They stood by their man, and then you know we heard about the resignation. Hmm. 
I think they handled it terribly. Um, I think from the Taoiseach's point of view, he probably felt he had to stand by his man because of his uh, Waverton support majority in his, in his own party. I think that played a big factor in it. I think when you look at the litany of, of errors that uh, Mr Troy did um, that were attempted to be brushed aside by the Taoiseach and also the Minister for Housing, I mean, not registering a tenancy with the Residential Tenancies Board, which in effect meant that, that it, if a tenancy... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Was there couldn't take a, take a case if, if they were, if, if they mm. um, if they felt they needed to, you know, not like the the disregard for the register of interests that, that we've been hearing from people in government is, has been shocking, you know, and, and I think what the public would be outraged by is that when they realised that the penalty for not actually filling it in accurately was just okay, go on, fill it in again, and, and that's it. So there's new ethics legislation being brought forward in the winter by Minister. Uh, Michael McGrath, I think there'll be extreme scrutiny on that and the public will want, um, I think, it to be bulked up significantly. OK, let's leave that there for now. Coming up next, the growing crisis around student accommodation. We're live at UCD. Stay with us. Welcome back. My panel is still here with me. Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley, consumer journalist Siobhan Maguire, Irish Daily Mail political correspondent Craig Hughes and Sinn Féin TD Rose Conway-Smith. Uh, Conway Walsh, I beg your pardon. Uh, well, we can go over live now to University College Dublin where Kira Doherty is standing by with more on the accommodation crisis that's facing students this upcoming third level term. Kira. Yes, thanks, Claire. As you say, I'm here at University College, Dublin, Ireland's largest university, home to 33 
thousand students who are all hoping to either start their experience at UCD in the coming weeks or return to uh, college courses. Over 17,000 of those students will require student accommodation, but there are around 4,000 uh, beds here on campus. So where do the other 13,000 go? Well, I'm joined now by Molly Greeno, the president of the Students' Union at UCD. Uh, good evening to you, Molly, and thank you for joining us. Look, we talk every year, don't we, about the difficulty and the struggle that students face when they're trying to find uh, accommodation. Is it different this year, do you think? Yeah, unfortunately, I think this year it's reached a breaking point. It seems, as you mentioned, year on year, there's students' unions covering the issue. It gets a few minutes in the press and then by the time CAO results are released, it fades into the background. I think this year we really are at a breaking point and maybe issues that used to be rooted in affordability are now rooted in an overall lack of supply. So it's certainly not like anything I've ever seen in my time in the union or in UCD. So what exactly are students doing then to try and secure accommodation? Well, first and foremost, you have students that are taking out private loans, which I personally believe and we in the Students' Union would believe that education is a right and you shouldn't have to incur debt just in the pursuit of an education so you have students and their families pushing themselves far beyond the price point and the amount that they'd be comfortable paying just in an attempt to either begin their course in UCD or finish up the course they began we also have students that are considering commuting from as far away as Galway or Belfast we have international students that have already landed over in the country have been searching for months with no luck and I suppose we have seen an increase in the number of students that are considering taking a leave of absence or deferring their course in the hopes that it might be able to source it might be easier to source accommodation next year because what you see is the big big difficulty here cost is obviously an issue but it's actually just availability. There quite simply are no beds. Yeah, I think availability is the real issue this year. We've seen from the recent DAF.ie report that there were only 716 rental properties available in the entire country. I think roughly nine or 292 of those were in Dublin. And you have to keep in mind that it's not just students that are competing for these beds. It's families, workers, pensioners. It's everyone that is trying to survive in the private rental sector and it's just becoming nearly impossible to do so. And I know you say look this isn't everybody but there is anecdotal evidence isn't there this year that people are talking about camper vans for example is there a possibility of you know using a tent as a you know temporary measure just to get them through the first couple of weeks in the hope that something else uh, might arise? Yeah there are students that are considering trying to move into a camper van we have been asked a handful of times if it's permissible to bring a tent on campus which I think just goes to show the gravity of the situation and how much students are willing to put on the line just in the pursuit of their degree and I think it's worth noting as well that we're also probably not hearing from a lot of students who've just decided that maybe it's not on the cards this year and there's no feasible way that they can endure those conditions just in the pursuit of an education. And what we were um, saying earlier is a college like UCD offers courses that perhaps other colleges in Ireland don't offer. But if you cannot secure accommodation, then that's just not an option for you. Yeah, unfortunately, UCD is home to courses like radiography and um, 
vet medicine, which are exclusive to UCD. So if you can't find accommodation in Dublin, then realistically, the future career path you want is cut out of the question, at least for this coming year. Uh, in the short term, Molly, what is the solution? I know you have directly appealed to local people here, haven't you, to try and put a room forward. I heard Minister Simon Harris uh, saying the same thing. Is, is that the answer? No, and to be honest, with credit to Minister Harris where it's due, I think he does have a better understanding of the need for a long-term solution than maybe any of his other colleagues in government. But to be honest, I would hope the government would have more innovative solutions than a 23-year-old trying to run a students' union. Um, I think the rent-a-room relief scheme, obviously we're grateful of the success it's had to date and over 240 people have come forward and offered up rooms in UCD as a result of our campaign but that really isn't even a band-aid on the situation. I think if the government are going to rely on schemes like the rent-a-room relief scheme they firstly need to look into legislating for protections under those licensee style agreements. I don't think it's really okay to be just putting students off into the most precarious forms of accommodation as that's the solution to the crisis. But I do think if the government quite literally wanted to put their money where their mouth is, they would completely abolish the student contribution charge ahead of this academic year and put that money back into the pockets of students and their families so they can best decide how to proceed this year. All right, we're going to leave it there. Uh, but Molly Greeno, president of the Student Union here at UCD, thank you for joining us. Back to you in studio, Claire. Kira, thanks for that. Let's get some reaction uh, from our panel to that. Rose, I want to come to you first. Um, in terms of what the opposition are saying we need to do around this, it is an annual problem, but this year it's particularly exacerbated, particularly in areas like Dublin, where it's not just an affordable issue, affordability issue, mm. it is, a, it is mm. a supply issue, that even if people are willing to pay those really high prices, there yeah. just aren't the beds. Yeah. And that was the problem, and that's why I kept flagging it up to Simon Harris over the months, because it's always a problem, as you said, but it was entirely predictable that it was really going to escalate and escalate and be on control earlier this year. And the things they need to do is they need urgent capital investment into the campus accommodation, to the student accommodation, because what's happening is the, the institutes of, of education, the projects aren't viable. So they have over 3,000 shovel-ready projects. So if there was to be an intervention in there, I've, I've consulted with them all, they could get those projects, those beds off the ground almost immediately. That's one of the things that could be done. The other thing is they need to look at rapid building. So projects are being stalled, that's what you're saying, like yes. in, in, in college campuses, yes. there are beds, but they're not completing the projects on these blocks. No, the, the, the projects are ready to be, so they're shovel ready, so they're ready to be built but they cannot get the finance for them. Now, you have to remember that this is because of the chronic underfunding of the third level institutes for the past 10 years. But that's why there needs to be an urgent government intervention to allow those projects to be viable to get off the ground. Now, we also... But a short-term fix, in terms of a short-term yeah. fix. Well, that's that something that, that can be done for okay. students who are, yeah. who are starting back yeah. in the college yeah. term. Yeah. in a matter of weeks. That would be fairly short term, but also there needs to be a rapid, we need to look at rapid build. The emergency is, is such that we need to look at rapid build on campus as well and on uh, college own land. Obviously the rent a room thing and, and Molly is right there in terms of the protections that need to be yeah. in place. But we need a new student accommodation strategy. We've been calling for for yeah. months and months again. I mean, the other one just wasn't fit for purpose because it was reliant completely on the private market. 
We've been hearing about this problem for months. There's been a warning about this for months, about what's going to happen come September. Now we're seeing it coming to bear, Timmy Dooley. And we heard that comment um, from the Students' Union and um, from Molly Greenlock there saying, you know, why don't you put some money back in our pockets then? What about this contribution? What about these fees that families are having to fork out when there's simply no accommodation for students to go to college then when they wish to? Yeah, there, uh, could you do something there, about there, that? There are, there are two separate issues that, that's raised by Molly and yourself there. The first, we all recognise we need to dramatically increase the amount of housing stock in the country. That's across all sectors. Government is working towards that. Yes, it was delayed uh, through mm. the pandemic, but we're getting but we're closer to delivering 33,000 jobs. Specifically on rents now and the rental and rents, well, crisis well, that we're well, facing. Well, like, it's a supply issue. Uh, mm. Putting more money into the hands of students isn't going to create more houses or more accommodation in the short term. Yes, it's putting people under pressure and we need to target Well, they might have to take out the private regard. loans. Yeah, and, 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 and that needs to be looked at in, the, in that. But that doesn't supply additional housing. And what we need is, and the Cabinet Subcommittee on Housing um, has given approval to Minister Harris to work on a plan to bring forward the kind of proposals that Rose has been talking about. And I expect that some of those... Uh, will move quickly uh, and that there will Why be more could, supply that in the coming months. not been done before the summer. Why is it all taking no, that, that's, so long? That was done a number of weeks ago uh, through, that, through, through, through the invention of, of that committee, working with the universities, because there is a recognition yeah. that the cost of production um, of those facilities creates a gap between the cost of it and the viability on the other yeah, hand. Just, and the it, it would appear for anyone watching or for students who are really worried and their families that it's coming very, very late in the day when we knew yep. we had this problem. Um, Siobhan, I want to also look broadly. Look, there's not news in this really from this My Home survey. We're hearing around the sentiment showing that the cost of living is posing a major problem for those looking to rent and to buy from a rental point of view. People simply can't afford now the rental prices that we're seeing right around the country and the supply issue is reaching breaking point in the capital. That's right. And when you look at the supply issue, actually, I mean, we've three times more Airbnb um, rentals out there than long-term lets. So landlords, private landlords, are, are completely, uh, you know, they're, they're leaving the market um, because they're seeing that it's it's not lucrative to stay put, that they're paying way too much tax as a private landlord. But that has the knock-on effect then that um, people who do own properties are saying, well, look, I can I can let this out on a short-term basis mm. and surely I can get more of an income um, in doing it in this way. But when you look at, at student accommodation in particular, it's increasingly hard year, year in, year out for students to try and find accommodations in cities to the point now that we're even seeing uh, properties being advertised, Claire, where they're saying students can move in, but you must be gone by Friday evening. You yeah. must be gone by Saturday morning. We were hearing about these Monday to Friday uh, rentals, mm. um, you know, and strict terms and conditions really that don't make it a livable. It's not a home for people. Um, it, it's, it's somewhere to stay, it, mm. almost in a digs-like situation, but without the digs price. Um, Craig, and also a story that went a little bit under the radar, but we have now got record homeless figures in this country. The number of homeless people in the state has reached a record high of 10,568, which includes over 3,000 children. Um, and, and what Dara O'Brien is putting it down to is actually that the, you know, the, that the evictions can happen once again. They were, of course, on... Uh, frozen for the duration of the pandemic, but now we're in a situation where families can be turfed out. Yes, and I, I think if you recall, the, um, the last high previous to this was when Owen Murphy was Minister for Housing, and, and the uproar that was caused around then, it seems to be, just seems to be accepted now because there's so many, so many other problems and this has been running on for so long. 
I think people are going to have to be prepared to be frustrated for a lot more, though. Um, I was at a doorstep with Minister O'Brien uh, last week, and he said even their targets for affordable and cost rental targets, a modest 4,000, won't be hit this year. Um, we already know that the government needs to be building 33,000 homes a year uh, to meet demand. The target for this year is 24,600. They, they may meet that, but it's still not enough, and it hasn't been revised since the intake of, of almost 50,000 Ukrainian refugees. OK, there we'll have to leave that. My thanks to my panel, Senator Timmy Dooley, journalist Siobhan Maguire and Craig Hughes and Sinn Féin TD Rose Conway-Walsh. Next up, we discuss obesity clinics abroad. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm joined by business owner and social media influencer Aideen Kate Murphy and Professor Helen Heenan from St. Vincent's Hospital in Dublin to talk about a story broken by Amy Malloy in The Independent about Turkish clinics targeting Irish social media influencers. And I want to come to you on this, Aideen Kate, because it happened to you. You were recently targeted by an obesity clinic in Turkey. How exactly did they approach you? So they literally just went straight into my DMs on my Instagram. Um, I opened my DM one day and I just saw a message offering me a collaboration if I wanted to come to Turkey to their clinic and receive gastric band surgery. So in the form of a collaboration, so you mm. do this, you post on social media, I've had this surgery, yeah. you know, look at me now. Yeah, almost looking to recommend it to my followers, which is something I would never do. How did you react to it? What did you think? I just was shocked, but like, I feel like I'm the type of person that I just would let something like that go over my head. But I feel like a lot of people may take it very seriously. And that's kind of why I felt the need to share it on my on my profile, because I just would never want someone to go and risk their lives doing something like that. Have you seen uh, fellow social media personalities posting about getting, you know, gastric band surgery done and how happy they're with it, they are with it? I mean, I'm just wondering how much we're seeing a proliferation mm. of all of this online in social media on places like Instagram, where we yeah, know well, beauty standards are always being under sharp focus. Yeah, like personally, I had never seen someone talk about it. That's why I was so shocked that I was even being targeted. And mm. if anything, it was poor influencer marketing, like to even approach me to do it, because anyone that would follow me would know that, you know, I really preach like just feeling comfortable in your own skin. And I own my own makeup brand, which is called True Beauty. So like it's very much about being yourself and just mm. being totally true to yourself. So it's just totally off the grid for me at all. You wouldn't be overly surprised by this. Um, Helen, in terms of as a medical professional, uh, professional who, who specialises in the area of bariatric surgery, are you seeing many people come to you now having got botched surgery abroad? I suppose, the, yeah, we, we've seen a huge increase in the number of complications presenting back in Irish patients where they've had their surgery abroad. It's hard to describe it just specifically as botched mm. surgery. I suppose I don't particularly like that term because mm. often the surgical procedure itself has been straightforward, but the selection criteria for patients has been completely absent. Like, so we do these surgeries um, in Ireland in the I suppose, context of a multidisciplinary clinic where patients are assessed by a whole team of individuals, most importantly by a psychologist and a dietitian, as well as other medical professionals before surgery, multiple times to make sure that patients understand what they're getting into and to understand that these are not cosmetic procedures at all. So I think what really worried me about this, um, you know, when, when Aideen Kate spoke up about it, was the fact that, you know, these companies are targeting um, particularly young women, you know, it seems to be, there seem to be their main audience who would have 
have a lot of vulnerability regarding weight and body image. Mm -hmm. um, and they're marketing these as operation uh, as procedures to attain um, thinness, which you know they equate to happiness. Uh, and that's just so wrong at many levels. Um, these operations are medical interventions for severe and complex obesity when it impacts on someone's health. Because as you said, they are risky, they have a risk. They're, they're safe operations when done in the right context uh, in patients who are well, well selected, well prepared for surgery and well followed up. They're life changing, often for really good reasons, but they have a risk. So people may have an idea that this is something cosmetic, this is a quick fix. You're saying it's anything but, and people aren't actually prefer, pre prepared for the psychological impact of it and also the physical fallout, the aftercare that's required. So there are people coming in and actually they never would have been a candidate for this surgery. They simply aren't at either that level of obesity. They, you know, it, it's just, it's not required. That's been a very recent trend where I've seen a number of people back who absolutely would not qualify for surgery per international guidelines as to who is eligible for surgery. Because when someone is choosing to have uh, an operation like this, the benefits of surgery should always outweigh the risks. And we really, we understand really well what the risks are. And I should say bariatric surgery is a really safe intervention. It's as safe as having an appendectomy, um, as having, a, you know, it's, it's considered a major abdominal operation, mm. but it has a really good safety profile when it's done well and in um, high quality, high volume centres. Uh, with an MDT or multidisciplinary team supporting a patient. Um, but it's really important to acknowledge and understand that, um, that risk. But I think the main reason people have gone abroad to date has been because they can't access surgery uh, in Ireland. Um, not like, it's not something that's ever done quickly, but our waiting lists are far too long. Mm -hmm. And the most common reason people go away is because they know it's going to be somewhere between four and six years before they can be seen in our clinic because of the chronic un it's been chronically underfunded for you know, for, for years, and if not decades. And that's a critically long time if you're in that situation mm. that, you know, you require this, this weight loss intervention uh, and it's an extreme measure, but it's something you require. It's also very costly. It can cost... Yeah you know, up to €20,000 candidate private clinics. Yeah, and, and I mean, if people were to pay for the, these, these operations are expensive. Um, you know, the best equipment is used for, very expensive in Ireland and certainly in a lot of European clinics um, because of the quality, I suppose, of mm. the equipment, the team and the centres. So when they're being marketed for as little as what um, Aidan Gate was telling me, you know, they were being marketed at like between three and 4,000. And I'm well familiar with patients paying that amount of money, um, which is quite a small amount. It, it worries me that corners are being cut. I know the cost of living will be a lot less in places where people are, where these surgeries are, go, are, are being done. But corners are certainly yeah. seem to be cut, not just in the preparation, but, but possibly during the procedure as well. And Aideen, Kate, would you say that's a concern as well, that we're seeing these deals being advertised where people may go over to, you know, get breast augmentation surgery and then, you know, we'll throw in a gastric band or something like that, that there's these crazy deals that are emerging on yeah. social media? Yeah, no, like... I don't really know too much about this and I would never judge someone for wanting to get surgery but I think for me I would want to make sure that I'm doing it the absolute best way possible if I was going to get it so I think to me it sounds unsafe anything that's like a cheaper option may not always be the best and that's what would really concern me the most. Do you worry um, as a social media influencer about the advertising codes that exists on these platforms that actually you know, clinics can target people mm. who then may post their glowing results. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be much regulation around that bar this. I think there's a beauty code saying consumers should be encouraged to take independent medical advice, like, you know, 
you know, check this yeah. out first, but also look at the results that I've got. That it's yeah. No, I it's think it's concerning because like too relaxed. Yeah, very relaxed. Because at the end of the day, it is surgery, and you know there is risks. Like you said, there's so many risks to everything. So, like, I just would be concerned about showing before and afters. And, like, especially nowadays, pictures can be altered. Like, not everything you see on social media is always real. So I just think I would never trust a recommendation like that just because somebody was gifted it. Mm. Do you worry about a lack of regulation in this area? And do you think more could be done in Ireland for what's happening? Not just clinics, you know, we're not just pinpointing Turkey, but elsewhere abroad, which may have more lax regulations around this. Yeah, we certainly need to do something to protect Irish patients, particularly the younger younger groups who are being targeted. And I suppose the, I think there's there's a number of solutions um, to deal with the biggest volume of people going abroad is because they can't access safe safe surgery here. So that's one thing we can do to um, address this problem. But certainly then to the the type of tar the targeting that these companies are doing of people who who would never probably qualify for surgery in the first instance is through better um, and tighter advertising regulations like my understanding is it's actually illegal to advertise medical devices and interventions uh, in the way that these clinics have done so that's something certainly something that could be done and then uh, thirdly education of the population about what um, these types of surgeries are about who they're for who would benefit who may not mm. and how they should be best done in the context of multidisciplinary uh, assessment um, uh, and, and follow-up afterwards. OK, well, thank you both for coming on um, to discuss this. Just to let you know, you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. My thanks to Professor Helen Heenahan and to Aideen Kate Murphy. That's it. Our programme is available as a podcast. We're now also on Instagram. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.